So I thought I would just tell you, um, start out by talking about um, Rachel and I went to the DIA, to the Detroit Institute of Art, a couple of weekends ago. We had a Detroit date day. And Rachel had never been down there. And I tend to like contemporary art, which if you know the DIA, that's not really its strongest suit. But they've got that wonderful Diego Rivera mural that's in the lobby that I like to see every time I go there. So Rachel and I went into the lobby and we were looking at it. And then I turned around and I saw something that just like really caught my eye. And I was really captivated by it. And it was this piece of art that was hanging over the front lobby way. So you guys know the DIA, like where you're coming in from Woodward Avenue? And so right above the lobby there, there were all of these different strings that were hanging down from the center and they were, you know, going over to different parts of the wall and different parts of the ceiling. And they had fabrics on it and ribbons and different plastics. And so they were all strung up. And as they went into the center, they were kind of being held together under the, um, this picture of this torso of a woman that was coming up. So it was from about here up. And she looked like she was emerging out of water. So her eyes are open and her mouth is closed, but you can tell she's taking like a big deep breath with her nose, like. And then all of those ribbons that are coming together were coming together from her torso, which had been kind of sliced open, but not grotesquely really. But just so that you could see that whatever these things represent, it's like they were holding her bondage, like she's trying to break free from them, like from her very insides. So I went over to read about the piece because it was, it was kind of beautiful in a macabre sort of way. And I found out it's a piece called The Lassa by a New York City street artist named Swoon. And she was originally commissioned to create this piece of art by the New Orleans Institute of Art. And it was after the big Gulf oil spill. Do you guys remember that? Like when the oil was just spilling into the Gulf of Mexico. And this artist had grown up on the, on the Gulf Coast. So she was like, I really love the ocean. And so what she's doing in this picture, she's imagining the water is living using the Greek spirit of the sea, Thalassa, right? And it's this um, living image of the ocean that's coming up and trying to break free of like all of the trash that we pollute the water with as it intertwines her and she's trying to live and breathe. And what struck me about it was how the piece imagined the world infused with spirituality and life, right? That the ocean water is being shown as this living, breathing creature that we need to care about. And I thought even more poignantly this week after pulling out of the Paris Accord, I thought there's gonna be even more art and more prophets showing us, putting us in our face what it is that we are doing to the earth around us as we're trying to choke and strangle the life out of the world with the, like our out of control consumerism with this good creation that God has gifted us to care for. But it was interesting to me because of the spirituality that she was seeing infused in nature. Because through hundreds of years, and I would say especially from about the medieval period on, Christians have been loath to think about nature as infused with spirituality. And this comes in part from the book of Genesis. It comes in part from the very beginning of our story and its insistence that God is other than the creation. Right, that God made the world but that God isn't the world itself. And this separation of God from soil and water and air and from the rivers is part of what marked Judaism, and then later on Christianity and Islam, it marked them out from what they called the pagan religions around them. And so it helped our religious traditions sort of break away from the idea of things like there's an angry volcano God that we need to sacrifice a virgin to or a child to, 
or like there's an angry ocean goddess that we need to appease or else they're gonna send calamity and, and like hurricanes and things at us. So the God of the Hebrew Bible, we were told, doesn't need humans to sacrifice or to appease him, but rather this God made the world for our benefit, for humans to thrive and to be happy. And this break from the pagan traditions has led to images of God being up in the sky while we humans are down here. So as we walk through the DIA, you know, most of the medieval and the Renaissance paintings, you know, they show the heavens and they're all kind of light and God and the angels are up there floating around and then the darkness and the people are sort of down below. But the earth itself isn't seen as imbued with this spirit of God. However, this God is up here thinking, I think actually misses quite a lot of the Hebrew worldview of the Bible. That while, yes, God was seen as separate from the creation, God was also seen as infusing the entire universe with his sacred presence. You know, that both of those ideas are actually held in the narrative. The idea of God as other than creation as well as the idea of God just steeping nature with the divine love and with divine spirit. So because of this pervasiveness of the idea that God is up there and us humans are down here, it's part of Christianity, I would say in the West in particular, and especially after the Enlightenment, to recover the enchantment of creation. You know, to recover this idea that all of creation is living. To recover the idea that God is actually with us and near us and next to us and all around us. And that we can find some aspect of the holy in every person and in every situation. So I was reading this book called Grounded by Diana Butler Bass. And part of the book I love and part of the book I was like, eh. But she had a really interesting thought in her introduction. So she's got a PhD in history. So she comes at religion from sort of a historian standpoint. But she spent her career looking at trends in American religion. And she said that during historic tragic events in American history, so big things like the Battle of Gettysburg, or when the Titanic sank, or when Pearl Harbor was bombed, bombed, that very few people asked, where is God? Like nobody was really asking, where is God? As captured in like diaries and letters and all of those sorts of things that historians use to gauge such things. Where is God wasn't the question that people were interested in because they assumed that they knew where God was, right? God was up there. And instead, she said that people were asking things like, why did God let this happen? Or what is God trying to teach us? Or what does God want us to do in response to this tragedy? Which are all good questions. People were trying to figure out God's intentions, but they just weren't really thinking about where God was located. But she said, in the last 20 years, something big has shifted in the American landscape. Americans have started to ask that latter question. So in response to things like 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina and the Ebola outbreak, people started musing about answers to that question, where is God? And she said she paid a special attention to the Sandy Hook shooting. So if you remember, Sandy Hook was the one where the, the disturbed young teenager came in and shot like 26 kids. I didn't want to say that with a kid in the room, sorry, over there. Um, but you know, it was this terrible thing that happened. And so she, as part of her research, started looking at blogs started looking at different conversations that were taking place on social media. She looked at sermons where different pastors dealt with the shooting. She looked at public memorials that were held in their honor. 
And she said that she noticed in her research that there were really five answers to that question, where is God, that people were giving. So she said the first group said that God was up in heaven waiting to welcome the victims with open arms. Right, so this is a little bit of that echo of God is up there and waiting for us. The second group, she said, was talking about how God allowed the violence because it was a blood sacrifice for our national sins. Right, in other words, that we're so evil that God allows terrible things to happen to our nation in judgment of us. Right, so there were people that said that Sandy Hook happened because of abortion or Katrina happened because of you know, us gays. Right, and the idea then is that God is an angry God who's sitting up there actively judging us and punishing us. So the third group says, well, God has nothing to do with any of it because either God doesn't exist or God doesn't care. Right, so it's a little bit like the God is dead. The fourth group talked about how God was directing the heroic acts of the teachers and of the police officers who helped save the children. So that actually started to bring God back down here to the earth. God down here and God is active and intervening. And then the fifth group, and this one she said was by far the largest, which was what surprised her, was that people were starting to say that God was with the victims. Right, this idea that God is the God of victims. And so numbers four and five, those last two, like God is with us, God is directing us, God is standing with the victims and weeping with the victims, they go together in that they imagine an intimate God who interacts with people and with the world around us. And this is a dramatic change in how we picture God and I think is actually a more accurate reflection of the biblical worldview. If we remember when Jesus came, like the name that he was told to have been called Emmanuel, right? God with us. Well, today is Pentecost. This is the day that the global church celebrates the giving of the Holy Spirit to all of humankind. We always celebrate it 40 days after Easter. So when Jesus came to the earth, you know, he lived, he died, he resurrected, and then he spent about 40 days appearing to different people and doing some teachings. And, and he was about to ascend into heaven, whatever that looked like when he disappeared into the heavenlies. He promised his disciples, his followers, that he would leave them a gift, that he wouldn't leave them alone. Right, when he went into heaven, he didn't tell his disciples, okay, guys, that's it. You're on your own now. You guys can come up with enough material, some stories about my life. He'll eventually write them down. They'll compile them into some sort of written Bible in about 300 years and, you know, take it from there. No, instead he said, I have so much more to say to you. I have more than you can now bear. But when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all of the truth. He won't speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. And actually, I should make a note there that actually the Holy Spirit in Hebrew and in Greek is usually either neuter or feminine. And most scholars think that the feminine is actually usually the more appropriate pronoun for the Holy Spirit, right? That she will come and she will lead you into all truth. So if we're looking to be led by God, with this Holy Spirit that Jesus left to his followers, then we're open to this dynamic connection with this spirit that leads to this greater revelation and relationship with the living Jesus. And that there really shouldn't be any bad news with connecting with a God whose very essence is love. Right, and that this very essence, we're told, can lead us and guide us in our lives. So on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus' disciples were waiting for this gift that he said that he would send to them, they were up in an upper room. They were outside of the temple area in Jerusalem. And I'm just going to read this bit here from Acts chapter 2. It said, when the day of Pentecost came, 
They were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, it came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that came and they separated and they came to rest on each of them. Usually we picture it as kind of above their head. And it said, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues, kov fefe, as the Spirit enabled them. Sorry. Somebody told me I needed to work in kov fefe and I thought, you know, speaking in tongues might actually do it. <laughs> I got a good laugh from Ken. <laughs> So now they were staying in Jerusalem. They were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Like there's a big thing happening going on here because each one of them heard in their own language what was being spoken. And so utterly amazed, they said, "Aren't these guys who are speaking? Aren't they all Galileans? How is it that each of us is hearing what they're saying in our own native language?" So amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, "What does this mean?" Some, however, made fun of them and said, you know, they've had too much wine. But something amazing happened that day that caused them to record this story, right? This idea that there was a blowing of a mighty wind that filled the whole house and the sound of it was so loud that people like came from around and about and some kind of fire or something they could only describe as fire is resting on them and suddenly they're speaking in other languages and then Peter and the others are going out onto the street and they start talking to people. And it was highlighting to those who followed Jesus that the spirit and his power, they move and they work outside of the temple area. Right, that yeah, you can go and you can meet God in a temple you can go and you can meet God in a church, but God's presence is also found outside of those specific sacred spaces. And they remember that most of Jesus's life's work was happening outside of Jerusalem, right? He was working apart from the temple, kind of bouncing into the temple and going back out. And he was healing the sick and raising the dead and preaching about God's grace and mercy and love and joy for everybody. And he was doing it in the streets and on the hills and in people's houses. And he was doing it with people who were not welcome in the inner sanctums of the temple. And he was doing it with people who were not welcome in the homes of the ritually pure or of the religious elites. Just as today, I think God works out in our homes and our workplaces and he moves among people who are not always welcome in our churches. So when the Holy Spirit came that day, it fell on Jesus' disciples in a common room that was outside the temple area. And then the first act of those followers was to go about shouting like they were drunk. And they were shouting the good news of God's love to the whole world, right? There were people there from Rome and from Northern Africa and from Syria and from Arabia, from all over. It was this radical idea of Pentecost the radical idea of Pentecost is that God can truly be found everywhere and by all people. And you might say it was like a disruption in the world. It was actually like a disruption in world history. You know, Phyllis Tickle has a short, but I think a very marvelous chapter in her book. It's called The Age of the Spirit. And she talks about the Holy Spirit as the agency of change in the world. Right? She talks about how it's about movement and disruption, change and transformation and she says that when God looks to change systems or to create movement toward more justice, that the Holy Spirit is the aspect of God that does this work in the world, right? The Spirit comes in and disrupts 
it like blows and everything kind of goes apart like dust and then the spirit sort of hovers over all of that chaos and all of that mess and it starts to help rearrange the system. Right, the first place we see the spirit of God in the Bible is in the second verse of the entire scripture. Genesis 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right, you've got the spirit, it's hovering over the chaos of the cosmos. Right, now, I don't think of Genesis as a science book. I, you know, I don't, so I don't think it's saying something about this, but the way I was picturing is like if you've got the big bang and then all the chaos before it starts forming, that's kind of what we're talking about. It'd be like if the spirit is the bang and then it's hovering over that chaos. As a person of faith, I'd probably say, yeah, that might be the way God did this. And the spirit is separating light and dark and land from water and it's catalyzing change and it's working through that mess of welter and waste and darkness to try and bring new life. And so now at Pentecost, we see the same power of disruption and transformation that's happening. Right? Because prior to Jesus' resurrection, prior to his life and death and being raised from the dead, the mark of belonging to God the mark of belonging to the people of God, physical mark was circumcision. And it was available only to men. Thank the Lord they didn't do female circumcision. But male circumcision was the mark of the people of God. And then Pentecost happened. And after that, the followers of Jesus came to believe that baptism was the new mark of belonging for the people of God. Both water baptism as well as baptism of the Spirit. Right? And the baptisms are available freely to everybody. It doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity, your class, your sexual orientation, your gender, your ability, your IQ, your education, your family background, your marital status, your ability to read and write, you get the idea, right? The Holy Spirit's available to everybody. With the Holy Spirit, the effects of privilege are washed away. It's the great equalizer. The idea was that the gospel could be understood and practiced and shaped by people who were fishermen in the Galilee, as well as by illiterate women, as many women in first century Judea were, just as well as by trained rabbis like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right? This is part of the radical claim of the gospel. So Pentecost blasted through the traditional thinking of who belonged. And the Spirit came and it hovered and it commissioned and it equipped these regular men and women to go out and to change the world and to bring life and to be part of this recreation of the world, right? That was what Paul and the other disciples were claiming. God is remaking the world and you are going to be infused with his Spirit. You're part of this hovering and this rearranging of helping to create order and justice in the world. And because of that happening, we here believe in a God who is love. We have a Christian faith because of these people, right? Pentecost actually disrupted all of human history and changed it and continues to do so. So some of you guys might be surprised to hear me describe myself as a Pentecostal. I would say, depending on your background, you might be like, sweet. And some of you might be like, oh my goodness. <laughs> That's a little terrifying. But clearly I'm not a Pentecostal in like the faith or knock them down on TV kind of way. And I certainly have some critiques of some of the, some of the developing, still developing theology of it. But I'm a Pentecostal in the sense that I believe that the Holy Spirit has been given to us today 
to empower us so that we can draw life from the spirit of love. And I think that the spirit speaks to us in many ways, various and sundry, just like the spirit spoke to people on Pentecost in whatever language they understood, that God is making himself, herself known to us in a way that is tangible for us. And that the spirit can be found everywhere and that it guides us and gives us life. So I thought I'd give a, a practical example. And to do that, I'm gonna embarrass my youngest sister, Lindsay, who's here with us today. Hi, Lindsay. <laughs> Steve said nobody, or Dan said nobody'd have to stand up, but I'm gonna point Lindsay out. She's really great and I'm gonna embarrass her a little bit. She doesn't know everything I'm gonna say. She's a high school teacher. And she taught eighth grade actually for many, many years. And she moved up to the high school three years ago, four years ago. The first year she moved up to high school to teach English, she was voted by the high school students teacher of the year. She's amazing. She teaches English. She teaches biblical literature in a public school in Bremen, Indiana. And I would say she is what you would call biblically astute. She's always reading theology with me and like discussing it. I keep telling her she needs to plant a church one day, but she's kind of a pastor to her students. So I was, I was chatting with her about this sermon and I was telling her how I think, you know, Pentecost means that the Holy Spirit is everywhere and can be found everywhere and that it, God broke out of the Holy of Holies when Jesus died. And so this means God's everywhere. And I wanted her to talk a little bit about what it means to see the Holy Spirit at work in her classroom or where she's at. Because I'm like, as a pastor, like, it doesn't really work so well. I mean, it does work, but I thought that would be a little bit weird. So... I was talking to her about it, and the first thing she said, she was like, oh yeah, I can come up with a ton of stories about how I see God moving in my classroom. But the very first one that came to her mind, that she was like, oh, I know exactly what I would say. She said that one of her favorite students is a young man named Marcus. I changed his name, just so we could do that. And she said, Marcus is a huge kid, like over six and a half feet. I mean, big, broad-shouldered, big hair, and he can sometimes put up walls that give up this sort of like tough guy, leave me alone kind of vibe. And it could be size, it could be this tough guy vibe that he's got going on. She said a lot of students and teachers either don't like him, they make fun of him, or else they're a little scared of him. And that could be, it could also be, he's also, he's biracial too, isn't he? So, I mean, I just feel like he could even just be feeling like he doesn't fit into a town that's mostly white with a pretty good Amish and Hispanic population as well. So Lindsay got to know Marcus, and she recognized that this tough guy vibe was probably more about his own fear of the world and where he's at. So he's adopted. Even his adoptive family isn't very kind to him. And so he's a little bit wary of people. And so she's just watching him and watching the way that he interacts with others, especially the kids that make fun of him. And she said she just started noticing that he's actually just a big, gentle giant. He's just a gentle soul. And he takes people's cruel comments. And instead of reflecting back their cruelty, he reflects back kindness. And so knowing that he identifies as Christian, she pulled him over after observing one of these times where the kids were making fun of him. And she said, I just want you to know that I see the spirit of God in you. And the way you handle those kids is just really gracious and loving. And he was a little embarrassed and he was like, well, thanks. <laughs> and then she was able to just keep watching him through the year and see how God was moving in him and just kind of ask God, like, what are you doing in this kid's life? And then she'd be able to speak into that and encourage it. And he grew to love her so much that at the end of this last semester, he's a senior, right? He came over to her and he gave her a big bear hug and picked her up so that her head touched the ceiling. <laughs> 
And I thought, I just think it's really cool that she's able to like look at her classroom and she, she tends to like some of the kids that have a little bit of a hard time in life and just be like, God, what are you doing in their life? And how can I be part of that? Where is your spirit already at work? And another place where she's doing it, I'm just saying this because it's kind of like, I'm so proud of her. She teaches Biblet. So she gets to teach the Bible as literature in the public school. And she's got some like really, really keen students who are asking big questions. And so just seeing that she had a particularly astute group of people, she just offered, because you can do this in a small town apparently, like, yeah, I'll do a little bit of like a Bible study at my house through the summer if any of you are interested. And they're reading like Roger Olson and um, Brian McLaren, like heavy theology these kids are. And like nine of them responded and they're going to be coming to her house every week throughout the summer. And I felt like that was just her just sort of gauging what the Spirit was doing and saying, I'm not getting paid for this. How can I, how can I empower them more? How can I help, help them bridge that space between learning that the Bible isn't literal and being able to maintain their faith, a healthy faith going forward? So I say those things just to say that God is at work in all of our lives and he's at work in people that we know and come into contact with and anywhere we are. And so one of the questions that we can ask as we become discipled in the way of Jesus is just, what are, what are you doing here, Lord? Where are you? I mean, I know you're here, but what are you doing in this room? Right, some of that Emmanuel prayer that we do, if you guys were here for that series, is sort of imagining, Jesus, where are you in the room and what are you doing? And is there something I can be doing with you to help just like move your kingdom forward or move some of your love or your, your justice forward in this position? So we're gonna keep some of this in mind as we go into the meditation this morning. And I'm gonna do a, a pretty simple meditation. So we usually take two to three minutes of silence or guided meditation time and people and humans make noise so I'm not worried about it being perfectly silent. But just start here by just kind of relaxing. You can close your eyes if you'd want, you don't have to. Taking a couple of deep breaths. And this is a little bit of an odd first picture, but I was kind of grooving on it this week when I, when I did it myself. And that's just, imagine your body as soil, like really dry, parched soil. Right? The humans come from the dust after all. You can you know, even look at your hands and your arms. Like, what is going on? And just look around you and imagine where you are in an outside space, a place that brings you some peace. smell like? What colors are prominent? Now, if you're willing, you don't have to do this, but I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and as we just sit in it, maybe imagine it like rain going into your parched soil of a body. And we're going to just sit in that for a little bit. 
So Holy Spirit, whatever you are, wind, fire, breath, water, I ask, Lord, that you would just come in this space and that you would help to refresh and refill those parts of us that are feeling parched and dry. Let's just ask the Spirit to show us a place where you're at work either in your own life or in the life of someone around you. Just Holy Spirit, where are you at work in my world? of you, I was feeling like maybe, maybe God is just showing you the face of someone, maybe just even a random colleague. And I would say just like maybe just pay attention to that and be praying for them this week. Pay attention to what's going on in their lives. Just make a little space here to just say, if the Lord was showing you someone or something, just to ask, how can I join you in what you're doing? I'm going to close with a blessing as I invite the ushers to come up. May the spirit who hovered over the waters when the world was created breathe into you the life that she gives. May the spirit who overshadowed Mary when the eternal son came among us make you joyful in the service of the Lord. May the spirit who set the church on fire upon the day of Pentecost bring the world alive with the love of the risen Christ and the blessing of God Almighty, who is the source, the wellspring, and the living water, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be among you and remain with you always. Amen.